We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Today, we are discussing the renovations being done to McCarley Gardens Apartments and some of the problems associated with it uh, with McCarley Gardens resident Tarmiko Carter and Citizens Action New York community organizer Kelly Camacho and Fruit Belt Advisory Council President Denise Barr. Thank you all for being here today. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. Denise, can you give us a little bit of the background uh, regarding the renovations that have been going on at McCarley Gardens? Right. So what happened is initially there was another organizer who had been uh, working with a resident there that's like family to him. And he called me and said that um, he needed help because his job takes him out of the city. He travels a lot. And so he wanted me to come and take a look and see if I could weigh in and I could give help with that. And so we did that. Um, Going out there at the beginning, seeing how they had building materials that were laying out where children were playing. It wasn't fenced off. There were a lot of um, problems just even walking through the uh, units, seeing extension cords and wires hanging over people's windows and doors it just didn't look right and so because i have someone that i have relationship with in mccarley i went and i had a conversation with tarmiko and she was showing me the issues that were happening with her unit Mm -hmm. and um i began to go from there and walk around and have some conversations with some of the other residents through tarmiko and other people and at that point I said, you know, I need help with this because this is going to be a bigger project than I can manage. And that's when I called on um, Kelly from Citizens Action and asked her to come and to work with me. And just to backtrack a little bit, this is a $57 million project. Plus. Um, plus yes. $57 million that we know that uh, Governor Holko announced in February of 2022. $57 million renovation project from McCarley Gardens Apartments, a substantial rehab project to an affordable housing development aiming to improve energy efficiency and o- the overall quality of life for residents living there. Um, Tarmiko, how long have you lived at McCarley, and uh, when did you find out renovations were being planned? <clears throat> I lived at McCarley for 17-plus years. I, they've been doing rene- renovation for on and off for a period of like 10 years. It finally came to head, and when we found out, it was like maybe two months into going into it. It was just like thrown on us. Thrown on you? Yes. Uh, who, how did you hear about it initially, that, that 
oh, hey, uh, so-and-so is coming to make renovations to your apartment and apartments all over McCarley. They passed out flyers. Flyers? They didn't call? They didn't... No, sir. So, so how long until they actually started uh, renovations from when you got the initial flyer? Probably like, maybe like three months. Three months? Yes, sir. And how did they, did they say, you need to move, you need to move your stuff? How did that work? Take me through that process. Okay, um, that was, that's funny because I was told my unit was going to be like one of the last units to get done. Mm-hmm. They came in on me. I had nothing packed up. They came in and they just threw my stuff, broke a lot, damaged a lot of my things, and just put it in the basement. I'm living there. We were supposed to go to the hotel. We were supposed to be moved out while they did that. Had our own personal items put up in storage. That never happened. Who told you that they were going to put you up in a hotel? The management. Management? Yes. So, no hotel. Damaged. Yes. Property. Yes. Broken property. Yes. How would you how would you describe your li- uh, the living conditions before uh, the renovations began? I mean, it was a lot of a lot of things that needed to be upgraded. But before the renovation, I would say that it was suitable, livable. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you've been there for what'd you say seventeen years? Seventeen plus years. Give me a glimpse of what life is like in McCarley Gardens. Quiet. It's a family orientation. You everybody know everybody there. Um, quiet, like I'd say. So, a lot of lot of friends, a yes. lot of relationships built up over time. Yes, over there. Yes. When yeah, other residents that I've spoken to have said uh, that their property was roughly handled by movers. You have said that some even allege they had their property damaged or stolen. Um. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that experience and and what the measures you've taken to you know get have some recompense to that? Okay, first of all, um, they moved. Like I say, they came in. I have asthma, I have MS, and I'm cancer. That's in readmission. So all of on top of all of that, I'm living in my house while they're doing this renovation. Dust everywhere. I mean, it was un- very unlivable. And then at the end, I'm the one that was stuck cleaning. They never cleaned up anything. And Denise, do you want to add a little bit more to that from what you've heard from other residents? Well, let me just backtrack for a second because when I came in and I had conversations with Termico, and I remember her telling me that um, they were supposed to come and do your unit, I think, in August. Yes. And instead they came in in June. Yes. So while she's emptying out um, cabinets, they're literally taking them down as she's emptying them standing there. Um, In terms of talking to other residents, I mean, common complaints. Everybody has the same issues, which makes the red flags come up, right? I mean, if everybody's having issues with paint, everybody's having issues with their windows, everybody's having the issues with their heating vents, Mm -hmm. you know, common things then you know that there's a problem. How would you say the renovations have gone? Are they still being done? 
Not to my apartment. Um, I can't speak on what's going on with everyone else's apartment. But as far as I know, my apartment is supposed to be done. But there's a lot of things that's going on with my apartment. Like, for instance, my daughter's ceiling is got water damage. It's cracking. I have cracked floors. My my door, I don't have a screen door because when the blizzard came, it broke it off. And they never put another uh, another one up. So it's a lot of things that's going on. Where do we go from here, Denise, with McCarley Gardens residents to get a resolution that's fair to them? Well, you know, the issue for me is that after dealing with harassment and some bullying tactics from uh, people at St. John's, I was very adamant in the fact that I am going to continue to do the job that I'm supposed to do as the advisory council president. You know, when you have people questioning you and telling you, you know, um, you know what, what skills do you have? What authority do you have to come in and to do this kind of job? You know, I had somebody stop us when we were handing out flyers for a town hall and tell us we're on private property. We're not allowed to uh, give out any information. We have to go through their office, their rental office, and get permission to hand out the flyers. I mean, stupid stuff like that. So, I mean, for me, at the end of the day, I made a promise that I was going to work on behalf of these people, and I was going to help them, and that's what I'm going to do. We are going to take a quick break, but you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White here with Denise Barr, the Fruit Belt Advisory Council President Citizens Action, Citizen Action of New York, community <laughs> organizer Kelly Camacho, and McCarley <coughs> Gardens resident Tarmiko Carter. We will be right back with you. Hey, I'm Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Every day around the world, New York Times journalists are digging into the stories of the day. On The Daily, we go deeper with our reporters to bring you more, more context, more insights, more voices, more of what you need to understand the news. That's The Daily from New York Times. Weeknights at 6 p.m. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we're back. Thomas O'Neill White, excuse me, here with McCarley Gardens resident Tarmiko Carter, Citizen Action New York community organizer Kelly Camacho, and Fruit Belt Advisory Council President Denise Barr. Kelly, I wanted to bring you in to talk about uh, this evening's meeting with Council President Darius Pridgen. Um, a lot of letters from 
McCarley Gardens residents being written to the Common Council president. Tell us a little bit about uh, Tuesday's tonight's meeting. Yeah, so tonight's meeting is definitely really significant for the folks here living at McCarley and the folks that have been involved. Um, McCarley Gardens is a very symbolic area. Um, it is historically for women and children to live affordably. Uh, in the city of Buffalo, affordable housing is all but disappearing. You you really can't find anywhere for under $1,000 anymore. Um, places with, with having pets, you know, it's disappearing. People not being able to afford security and down payments. Um, we don't make enough anymore to be able to afford good housing. And so for me, I got involved in McCarley when Miss Barr brought me in. And really what I was able to see just immediately coming in was that everybody's having very similar problems. They're very consistent across the board, whether it's it's gapping floors or there are cabinets with screws sticking out um, or uh, the vent that was installed on the microwave not being properly installed and therefore causing a draft from uh, outside to right in directly into folks' kitchens, not being able to heat food. It's just a very poorly done project all across the board. But what I've also noticed is that a lot of residents are uncomfortable with speaking up, um, knocking on doors. They, they're hesitant to address some of the problems. Folks will be like, we're not having any problems. But then, you know, you dig a little more and it, it ends up being like peeling paint and mold in the bathroom. It's just so many different things all come out. And people are afraid to speak up because this is this is Section 8 housing for the most part. It's subsidized housing. It's affordable housing. Folks can't afford to live anywhere else. Right. So a lot of folks feel that if they complain, they're going to get kicked out and they're not going to have anywhere else to go. Um, folks like Tarmiko that were living in open renovations, some people ended up having to live in their cars. Um, it's all very inappropriate. Like this is a quality of life issue. Um, mm -hmm. Being poor does not mean you don't get to have a safe and healthy place to live. Um, and so that's why we took it to Council Pridgen tonight. We mm -hmm. want to feel that folks have a way to voice their concerns and that they're not going to be penalized. And so bringing residents together, there is an exceptional amount of strength in numbers. And so tonight we, we have our letters that have been signed by residents that we're going to be addressing. And then we're also going to have some residents give testimony about just what living here at McCarley has been like. And so I think it is going to be a very significant meeting to be in attendance or. And I wanted to ask the three of you uh, also about tonight's meeting. What do you what would you like to hear from the Common Council president? Well, I don't you know, it's it's not the issue with the pre Common Council president. It's the issue with the developers and the people that have been doing the renovations, because, you know, hearing that people have been told consistently by uh, management, by the project manager, that they ought to be grateful. You know, you ought to be grateful that we're 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 doing anything for your your housing. I mean, very inappropriate conversations that have happened. A lot of bullying tactics, and I want them. To, all I said from the beginning is I want them to do right by these people. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing for them, do that. If you would just do right by these people, I can stand back and go on and do the other things I have to do. I'm not doing this because it's fun. We're doing this because it's necessary. We need to make sure that these residents are taken care of. Kelly? Management has not been receptive to our being present and working with residents. <laughs> um, so I think our biggest takeaway for tonight is the expectation that management will show up and they will show up in good faith, ready to do work for these residents. And it's St. John's. That's the 
So there is a third party um, LLC management company, um, but it is directly presided over by uh, Oak, Michigan, Michael Chapman and St. John's and St. John's. OK, where does where do where do Oak, Michigan and uh, New York City based? Uh, what is it? BFC. Where do they stand? When we have had interactions with the developer, um, there wasn't much accountability. Uh, it was definitely a lot of wanting to do the right thing on paper, but seeming very out of touch. They are a Brooklyn-based developer. Mm -hmm. um, so every week, uh, what what is it? The project manager. The project yeah, manager, he gets yeah. flown in. Flown in every week, flown back out when the work is done. Very nice. Um, so something just very out of touch, doesn't know what the city of Buffalo needs at all. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference when you're dealing with people who've never really had that Buffalo experience in terms of really living here. Yeah, no you know, stakes in the community. In, yeah, I mean, they come in to do the job and then they leave on Fridays and they go back to, you know, another place entirely. And so how do you have any kind of attachment or, or feeling for what needs to be done if you're, you know, coming from somewhere else? You really, you're just there to do the, the work that you're told to do and move on. So how do we hold these people accountable? Well, how we hold them accountable is that we contact these residents, continue to have the conversations, stand our ground when we're being bullied. You know, we take these letters to Common Council and have them filed and recorded and have councilmen step in to be the mediator. I'm not trying to fight with anybody. I just want them to do the job that they were paid to do. $57 million at the very least. Yep at the very least for this project. And given what residents have said about the work that was done, do you believe the entirety of the 57 million was, at the very least was spent specifically on renovations? I believe that they have cut a lot of corners because they're trying to pull most of that money into phase two. That's what I believe. I believe that that is going to be their jewel and that's what they're moving towards. They want to wrap up on, on the work that has been done, whether there's been renovations that they were supposed to come back and finish or not. They're trying to move on to that phase two tower so that they can continue to make the money and build their profit off of that. Okay, so let's let's get into phase two. What is phase two? What is what's being done at St. John's Tower? Well, that's interesting. I They had had a meeting. They called a meeting, um, public meeting with the residents. I did go, and I hear, you know, all the lovely stories about how they're doing great things with these residents, and the work is going terrific, and, you know, they're looking to do this Phase 2 tower where the people that have been there, like Charmico, for this period of time are not even going to have access to those amenities in the tower you know, brand new gym and state-of-the-art kitchens and all kinds of other things that they're looking to do there, and the people that have been there won't be able to use them. Now, automatically, that's not right. You know, um, parking, the, the city, as far as I know, has blocked them because of the way that they have looked to structure the parking. You know, that's not even something I had to step in and I had to try to work on. So if the city is pushing back, that tells you that there's another issue there that's going on. You mentioned doing well by the people, that that's what needs to happen. Yep. But 
is there is there specifics to what that may look like? The specifics for me are that the people that are living in those units are happy with the work that's being done. At the end of the day, once those doors are closed, they feel comfortable where they are and the money has been spent the way it's supposed to be spent. That's what it means to me. Now, for someone that's living there, it may be a different situation. Yeah, Tarmiko, let's, uh, let's, let's get your opinion on that. Go right ahead. Could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, Denise mentioned doing well by the people, doing right by the people. Um, what would you like to see moving forward? How would you like to? How would you like your concerns about what happened in your living space addressed? Well, with with my well, what I would like to see is, I would like to see the job done the right way. You know, not a rush job, not an improper job, a job done the right way. I felt that they just came in and they rushed it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that no one should have to live like that, like Denise says. We shouldn't have to live like that. And Kelly? Yeah, so for me, I definitely feel that McCarley is a very important symbolic location. Um, it's affordable housing. It has highway on one side, parking garage on the other, and then medical campus on the other. Um, I think that McCarley Gardens needs to be insured as affordable housing for the future. I would love to see McCarley Gardens always being an affordable housing complex. One of my fears locally is that it seems like McCarley Gardens is being set up for student housing. Um, right. There's not a lot of money in affordable housing. Right, <laughs> You're right. not making a big bag off poor people, but there is a bag to be made. Uh, and so for me, with the downsizing of some of what these apartment sizings are looking like and the way that residents are currently being treated, it seems like they are trying to get as many residents out as possible. And I believe that either whether it's through selling the gardens or through just including student housing, whatever the shift may look like. Um, I believe that McCarley Gardens is on its way to becoming student housing. And with, again, affordable housing disappearing in Buffalo, McCarley Gardens is a very symbolic place for what Buffalo is going to become. Right, right. Are we going to allow it to gentrify or are we going to allow it to be there for the people? And in all fairness, let me just say, I still have a member from the McCarley family that's living in the Fruit Belt. You know, so how much more meaningful is that for us to know that that legacy is still happening in our own neighborhood? It's not right that they're not, you know, I don't think that they even are aware of how McCarley Gardens came around, how that whole thing got structured in the first place. And, you know, if, if you're not even investing in the history of black Americans in this city, that speaks volumes, right? Right. I mean, it's 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 very inappropriate. The whole thing just feels feels bad. Medical campus encroachment. Ha. Huh. Very twenty fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. The last thing I wanted to ask you. Um, you guys have a meeting with uh, Darius Pridgen this evening, mm -hmm. and on Wednesday you have a uh, press conference. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you if you will. Yeah, so what we would like to do is on Wednesday morning, we would like to take some residents and have folks give their experience of what McCarley has been like, along with some local housing organizers, myself included. Uh, this is just 
an instance where a lot is falling by the wayside because people are very controllable with fear. Uh, and so meeting with Councilman Prison really gives us an opportunity to link together and bring our power together in numbers. Um, bringing these complaints in an official documented capacity to Prison makes it harder for uh, management to come after individual tenants and try to continue to do the things that they're doing. This brings out public exposure. And I think that tonight's meeting will be very powerful as it continues to activate not only McCarley residents, um, but elected officials, and community members as well. Tamika, are you going to speak? Sure. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to speak at the at the press conference? Yes. Excellent, excellent. Denise, are you going to be there? I don't know. I have a conflict. I'm doing half meetings lately with everybody <laughs> because my schedule is just full. And as you know, I have this issue on the other side of our neighborhood. Right. But I'm going to try. This is Buffalo What's Next? Our daily discussion on race, education, and our shared humanity following the May 14th top shooting. I want to thank Tarmiko Carter, Denise Barr, and Kelly Camacho for being with us today. Thank you, the three of you, so thank much for you. being here. Thank you for having us. Coming up next, Dave Debo, Karima Amin, and storytelling. Thanks for joining us. Marketplace wants to know, what have you always wondered? We get to the bottom of your economic queries, whether it's how coupons actually work or who writes the tax code. No question is too big or small. Ask your question at marketplace.org wonder. You might just hear it answered on the air in our series, I've Always Wondered. Weeknights at 6.30. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, The Adirondacks. We've come closer here to a, a working balance between the natural world and the human world than just about any place on Earth. The Adirondacks, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Attention parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. Hey, I'm Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Every day around the world, New York Times journalists are digging into the stories of the day. On The Daily, we go deeper with our reporters to bring you more, more context, more insights, more voices, more of what you need to understand the news. That's The Daily from New York Times. Weeknights at 6 p.m. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Somewhere. This is Dave Debo for the balance of the program today. We've got a guest that perhaps in some parts of the community needs no introduction. 
For decades, Karima Amin has been a storyteller in and around Buffalo and way beyond as well. Nationwide, you told me uh, before the program started that you were your storytelling took you to Africa five times. You, yeah. you are known for history stories that reinforce people's culture, and I am so glad to have you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. For those who are unfamiliar with her work, we could do a lot of discussion. Hey, Karima, what's mm-hmm. storytelling? But I figured maybe the best way is to just start with one of your stories. All right. This is a story, a short one, that I happen to love because I think it celebrates our resilience. Uh, it can be found in a book by Julius Lester called Black Folk Tales, and it's about a man, a black man, working on a plantation somewhere in Tennessee. And while he's working, he hears children screaming, yelling, calling for help, and he recognizes the voices of the children to be the children of his owner. He takes off his old straw hat. He looks out across the field and beyond to the water where he sees the children are in trouble. They're in a little boat. They've lost their oars, and they're calling for help. Without a moment's hesitation, he runs across the field. He leaps into the water and saves the children. His owner is so happy, so overjoyed, as is the mistress of that plantation. The owner of the plantation says, you know, John, I could let you go now. I'm so thrilled with what you've done for my family. I could let you go, but you know, I won't do it now. Maybe in a year, if you will just work for me for one more year and bring in a big harvest, I'll let you go. I'll free you. You can go. There was no more discussion about it. John thought about it every day, thought about it all the time. And when the year had passed, the owner of that plantation had said nothing. But uh, John didn't either. He just started packing up his few belongings in a bundle and attached the bundle to the end of a stick, and he placed that stick across his shoulder, and he started heading up the road, going north, going north, going north, and saying to himself, night and day, I'm on my way. And you know what? He could hear the slave owner's voice shouting at him, John, hey, John, you know we love you. Come on back, boy. Work just a little longer. But John said, night and day, I'm on my way. I got to keep on stepping. Hot or cold, I got to be bold. I got to keep on stepping. That plantation owner yelled at him again, hey, John, come on back, boy. You know Missy loves you. She loves you just fine. Come on back. But John said to himself, to himself. His words were far more important. Rain or shine, freedom's got to be mine. Night or day, I'm on my way. Hot or cold, I got to be bold. And that man yelled at him again, John, come on back here, boy. The children love you. You know they do. Come on back. But John wasn't listening to those words. He was listening to the words in his own mind, his own heart. Night and day, I'm on my way. Hot or cold, I got to keep on stepping. Rain or shine, freedom's got to be mine. I got to keep on stepping. And that's what he did. He kept on stepping, going up the road, leaving that Tennessee plantation, made it to Pennsylvania, made it to New York State. They say he went on to Canada. I don't know. But freedom was on his mind. And I think this is a story that speaks to our resilience. No matter what others say, listen to your mind, listen to your heart. 
When was the last time you told that story somewhere else? Oh, probably, I don't know, three weeks ago. <laughs> Before school kids, I'm guessing. Oh, yes, high schoolers, as a matter of fact. A story about resilience, and I'm hoping that it's a story that reminds them you've got to be resilient, got to be strong in your beliefs, got to be strong in what it is that you feel in your heart to be the right thing to do. There are a lot of things pulling at you, but you got to know in your heart what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. This is almost a rhetorical question because I think the answer is fairly obvious. Mm -hmm. But why is it important? Why do you do this? I do this, number one, because I love it. So okay, that's, that's probably... not the answer I expected, but go ahead. <laughs> I love, love, love storytelling. I've always loved storytelling. My mother and father were great storytellers, and I can recall spending lots of time, many, many hours, listening to their stories. They were not from Western New York. My dad was from North Carolina, a little place near Greensboro, and my mom was from South Carolina, a little place near Columbia, South Carolina. And they told stories about the South. They told stories about growing up. They told stories about their own history, and they told stories about what they learned from history, what our history has shown them throughout their lives. And I think that goes to the importance of it, what history has shown us through our lives. Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. There's no other way to know it. Uh, stories define us. Stories... Uh, <laughs> We are stories. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I tell people many of the times when I'm in a place where I'm telling stories, I'm not the only storyteller in the room. Everyone in the room is a storyteller. Your lives are stories, and those stories need to be told. They need to be shared. Someone can always benefit, mostly you. So. What reactions do you get, like in a classroom setting? Uh, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> some, well, depends. Um I remember in the early days, I used to always get elementary school, and I had young children, elementary school children. After almost 25 years of working with high schoolers, um, that was really, really different, and I would have to choose stories that were stories that they could respond to, stories that they could understand, and uh, I learned that there are some stories you can tell to anybody whether it's a second grader or a 12th grader. There's some stories you can tell to anybody. Stories speak to our culture as well as our history. Stories will tell you about me and about what I've lived and what I am living. So I do it because I love it. And I think people understand that I love it. And they learn from whatever story I'm telling, whether it's about me or it's a fable or it's a folktale or maybe it's a fable they've heard for years and years and years and didn't really get it until I told it in the way that I sometimes change fables. You mentioned fables, and we will get to Br'er Rabbit in just mm -hmm. a second or two. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what um, if there was ever a case yes. where you could visibly see that this story had moved someone or changed them somehow. Yeah. There's a story, maybe not this particular one, but there's a much longer story that I frequently tell called The Cowtail Switch. And it's about um, a hunter uh, who has earned a cowtail switch. It's a symbol of his abilities to do amazing things. And when he had left his family, he told his wife that he would be back in time for the evening meal. He didn't make it. 
And when the boys, his sons, came home from working in the fields, they heard that Dad hadn't made it back. And when the evening mail time came, he hadn't made it back. And next morning, he hadn't made it back. And now, day after day, week after week, month after month, they were wondering, where's our father? Has he been injured? Has he been captured? Has he been killed? Where, what, where's our father? The part I didn't mention at the very beginning is that the wife was pregnant, and she had the baby while he was gone. She had the baby in his absence. She named the child Abayomi. Abayomi means one who brings great joy, and he really did. He made everybody in the village smile and laugh, and he lived up to his name truly. And one day, after many, many months had passed, that baby said, Where is my father? And for the first time in a long time, the older boys, the five older sons, who hadn't thought about him in a little bit, thought, yeah, where is he? The oldest son said, I am going to find his track. I know it's been a long time, but we're going to follow the trail and we'll find him. And so they do. I'm really trying to make this story short. That's okay. <laughs> and the oldest son leads the way and the other boys follow him. And they eventually discover their father's bones lying in a clearing, and they know that those are the bones of his, their father because his spear is lying on the ground and his marking is on the handle of it. They know that those are the bones of their father, and they begin to recall the words of their elders, words of strength and courage and, again, resilience. And as they recall these words, they begin to give their father life. The oldest son said, I will shout these words, and he does, and he does it correctly, and there's a perfect skeleton laying on the ground. And son number two says, I can give these bones muscle and flesh, and he says those words of the ancestors, and muscle and flesh appear. And the third son says, I can give him blood, and blood is precious life. And they can see that warm blood is flowing throughout his body from head to toe. And son number four said, I can give our father, my breath, and he places his lips on the mouth of his father and breathes into him. And they can all see their father's chest is rising and falling. He's breathing. And son number five says, you know, I think if I shout the words of our ancestors loudly enough, our father will be with us again. And he shouts those words, and the father sits up, and he calls his five sons by name five older boys. He calls each one of them by their names. He embraces them. He, they embrace him and lift him up, take him back to the village where the people begin to plan for a homecoming celebration. And he's excited to be home and they're excited that he's back. His wife collects beads and shells and bits of colored metal, glass and string, and he uses those things to decorate the handle of his cowtail switch a symbol of his courage and bravery and his skills as a hunter. And when he steps out of his home in time for the the big homecoming celebration, men with lots of money want to buy it. He tells them no. Women and children, especially the women, think it's so pretty and he might just, if they compliment him enough, just might give it to them. But he doesn't. Some of the people in the village think that if he's having difficulty deciding who to give it to, then he should give it to the five older boys and let them share in the possession of the cowtail switch. But he doesn't. He tells everyone, I've made my decision. I've made my decision. I'm going to give this cowtail switch to the son who restored my life, 
the best and brought me home. And he does. He gives that cocktail switch to the baby, to the youngest son, mm. whose first words were, where is my father? Because of those four little words, the older boys then thought of him again, remembered him, and they realized, too, that nobody really dies as long as he or she is remembered. And you chose to tell that story right now after I asked the initial question yeah. about reaction. Yeah. You told it somewhere once. How did? What, what kind of visceral, <laughs> uh, real? People have cried for that story or in the telling of that story. People begin to remember folks that they hadn't thought about in a while, family member, friends. Um, I've gotten all kinds of reactions to it, but people I've seen cry at the end of that story because it's so true. No one ever dies as long as he or she is remembered. we got to say their names and tell their stories. And that really, I think, is an appropriate uh, message, obviously, for Black History Month, for the work mm -hmm. that you do, yeah. that we can learn from our ancestors, from our heritage, that our heritage is important. Absolutely. There's, there's no question. Um, all this month, I've been on a campaign to restore the name and the face of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who first had the idea of recognizing Black Negro History yeah, Week. Negro he History had. Week. And I hate it when people say they gave us Negro. No, they didn't give us anything. It's Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who in 1926 said, let's celebrate, let's recognize, let's honor the history of African and African-American people. And, and then in the, in the 70s, I think it was Kent State students yep. that said, hey, a week isn't enough. Let's, no, it let's isn't. do more here. And we know, of course, a month is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm all about Black History 365. There's so much history. And I've been in places where I could show Dr. Carter G. Woodson face on a big screen. And I do that because everybody recognizes Dr. King. In fact, little children think it's Martin Luther the King who started Black History. Mm. No, it's not. No. no, no, no. It was before Dr. King was even born. Okay, King was born in 29. Carter G. Woodson had this idea in 1926. Six, yeah. Negro History yeah. Week. And he chose February because in that month were the Frederick birth Douglass and, and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's second sure. week birthdays. That's why he chose February. And so um, that needs to be said over and over and over again. So little folks aren't saying, we have it because of Martin Luther the King. No, <laughs> no, no. We're with Karima Amin, storyteller extraordinaire, a nationally known storyteller based here in Buffalo. How did you get into all this? Give me a, <laughs> give me a short story of your history. Oh, How did this God. start? Well, I mentioned my mother and father telling stories all the time and enjoying the stories and recognizing the stories. But after almost 20, almost 25 years of teaching in the Buffalo schools, I'd been doing a lot of storytelling in my classroom. And then people who saw me doing it invited me to a church event in 1984 called Storytelling for Peace. It was at one of these downtown churches. And um, someone who knew that I was doing it in the classroom asked me, do you have a storyteller story about peace? Yes, I do. And so I told a story about peace. And the women who organized this event decided to stay together and create an organization, Spin a Story Tellers of Western New York, um, which still exists. It's kind of wobbling right now, but it still exists. And this is a broad collection of storytellers, yes. not, not the specific black history focus that you have. Correct. Stories from all different places around the world. 
And it was a wonderful, wonderful n- another introduction to storytelling because I knew my family stories and I knew the fables and folk tales that I loved the best, African and African-American. But I also learned stories from other cultures, which I think was of vital importance. Uh, most folks around Western New York know that I tell a story called Looking Good, Looking Good, Looking Good. That's my telling of the Jewish folk tale, The Tailor. I found that story in a collection of Jewish folk tales told together, anthologized by Nancy Schimmel in a book called Just Enough to Make a Story. And when I read that story, it made me think of my mother, who always said, you don't need a lot to do a lot. You take the best of what you have and vow to do your very best with it. And that's what the tailor is all about. However, when I tell it, I remember telling it one time, and I'm saying, looking good, looking good, looking good. I was at the storytelling place in um, Lewiston Art Park, and a little boy in the front row started saying, looking good, looking good with me. <laughs> and the teacher was trying to tell him, don't, don't, shh, shh don't. And I liked him saying it with me. Yeah. So now when I do it, I invite the whole audience to say, looking good, looking good, looking good, as the tailor makes a jacket, and then he makes a and he wears it out. Then he makes a vest, and he wears it out. Then he makes a cap, and that wears out. And then a tie. And finally, he makes a button. And you wonder at the end, if you don't know the story, what can he make from a button? And what he makes is this story. And he told it to me, and I just told it to you. And people usually laugh, yeah. or kids make, yeah. like, oh, you know, they were expecting something else or whatever. But I, um, I think of... Maybe the best lectures in college, or mm-hmm. even even the that one memorable teacher in high school. Yeah, and they were storytellers. Yes, they were. But storytelling is not universal in school teaching. I mean, it's a part of it, sure. Mm-hmm. What does it say about education that in order to concentrate on storytelling, you almost had to to remove yourself from the formal process of being a teacher? No, in fact. Telling stories in the classroom, I know from experience, not just with the high school students that I work with forever and ever, but even with the little folks um, that I'm working with now. Actually, I'm volunteering with second graders, okay? Um, <laughs> okay, shame on me. I forgot. What was that question? <laughs> the, the idea that storytelling is maybe yeah, a part, okay, okay, okay. Maybe a part of education, yes. but not necessarily well, so. Yeah, I know that it made my students, especially in the high school, better readers, better writers, better speakers, better listeners, better thinkers. So when I go into a space, whether it's high schoolers or middle schoolers or elementary schoolers, I'm still thinking in the same way. If I'm telling a story, something about that story is going to help you to become a better reader, better writer, better speaker better thinker and it's something that I truly believe in and maybe that's (laughs) sent out to my audience Um, I know that it works and I know even when I run into former students from 20, 30, 40 years ago who you know run into them in a supermarket or somewhere else and they introduce me to their children or their grandchildren and they're things that they remember and sometimes the children and the grandchildren know the story that they were referring to, and they chime in with the telling of it. 
uh, it happened the other day. Uh, a woman practically jumped in my face and said, Harriet Tubman didn't take no stuff, wasn't scared or nothing, neither. Didn't come in this world to be no slave and didn't stay one either. Farewell, she sang to her friends one night. She was mighty sad to leave him. But she ran away one dark, hot night, ran looking for her freedom. She ran to the woods, she ran through the woods, with the slave catchers right behind her. She kept on going till she got to the north where those mean men couldn't find her. Nineteen times she went back south to save three hundred others. She ran for her freedom nineteen times times to save black sisters and brothers. Harriet Tubman didn't take no stuff, wasn't scared of nothing, neither. Didn't come in this world to be no slave and didn't stay one either. either. And she said that to you because you had once told that story <laughs> and it, it stuck with her. It did. It stuck with her like forever. I mean, all these years, I sometimes run into students on Facebook who remember things that I have forgotten, but they remember. And it was obviously important. We remember those things that are important to us. And you also have a group called Prisoners Are People Too. Yep. You have done stories in the prisons and even worked to get people released from prison. As much as we can. We work really hard to do that. There was a time Mm -hmm. when you ran into former students in jail. Tell me about it. Yeah. First invitation ever to a prison was to Attica. Of course, I knew what happened regarding the rebellion in 1971, but I didn't know where Attica was. I didn't know where the prison was, but these men heard me on the radio, and they invited me to come and celebrate Kwanzaa with them. They heard me talking about Kwanzaa, and of course, I said, yeah, I want to go. I want to go. I want to share. Kwanzaa is something else that's very important to me. Those principles, the Nguzo Saba, speak to me every single day, and I wanted to go. And a gentleman who is now a bishop uh, in the community was at that time working in the mailroom at the time of getting that invitation. And he says, Karima, I'll get you there. I'll take care of you, get you there, bring you home. So uh, a a man at the prison who was a social worker who had heard me telling stories two years prior on the replica of the slave ship Amistad went to bat for me, went to administration that didn't want me to come in and said, we got to have her, we got to have her. And so it worked out that I could go into Attica, first time in a prison, and celebrate Kwanzaa. And you looked out and in the audience. Yeah, three of my former students sitting in the audience, something that I didn't expect, uh, and it was a real shocker. I was not allowed to speak to them. I was not allowed to hug them uh, I kind of let them know that I see you, Mm. you know, but I couldn't do anything. It was a real shocker. A couple weeks later, I went to their families' homes. They were not only my former students, but also my former neighbors. And I discovered they all didn't come to prison together. It was in every instance, however, drugs that brought them to prison, where they ended up being there together at Attica. And from that point forward... Every time, every every single time I went to a New York State prison, I found former students, uh, which saddens me immensely. But I think I tried to do my best. And, you know, society, however, and systems, however, operate differently. And, you know, you don't always get what you want. Uh, some of those guys, and girls, too, Um, are out now and doing very well, and I'm very proud of them. So um, we do what we can when we can. Like my mama said, 
Always vow to do your best. Always, always, no matter how much or little you have. Just vow to do your best. So, We have roughly four minutes left here. Mm-hmm. Is that time enough to squeeze one more in? Uh, I think so. Uh, I'm going to do something funny. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> if I have to, I'll okay. cut you off at the end, but let's do it. <laughs> okay. This is gonna, you know, <coughs> I mentioned that I love, love, love fables and folk tales. And, sometimes and you have a book of Br'er Rabbit tales, I do. You do. I do, but the one I want to tell is an Aesop fable. Everybody knows Aesop sure. fables. You grow up with Aesop fables. And I did. And the Lion, all, all right. of those. Yep. My, my children did, too. And wherever I go, everybody knows about the race between the tortoise and the hare. In fact, a version of that Aesop fable is in my book um, about the race between the tortoise and the hare. But the one I really love, love, love is <sighs> there's a time for work and a time for play, something my mother always said, which is the ant, the grasshopper. Huh. Grasshopper did the bop, hip hop, he don't stop. Brother Hopper did the bop, hip hop, he don't stop. Brother Hopper did the bop, hip hop, he don't stop. They say the day was sunny and bright. And that grasshopper danced to his heart's delight. Oh, he danced and he pranced and he pranced and he danced. And he made some funky music to entertain his fans. And they clapped and they cheered and they cheered and they clapped. They sang all his songs, every note and every verse. They admired his moves, every twist and every twerk. And Brother Hopper did the bop, hip hop, he don't stop. Brother Hopper did the bop, hip hop, he don't stop. Finally, he noticed a hardworking ant. Come join me, my sister. I can't, said the ant. Sing with me, my sister. I can't, said the ant. Come on and dance with me, my sister. I can't, said the ant. She said, winter is coming. It comes every year. The fields will be barren. No food, that's my fear. I'm stocking up food for the cold days ahead. I'll be happy and warm and no doubt. Well fed, and Brother Hopper did the bop. Hip-hop, he don't stop. Brother Hopper did the bop. Hip-hop, he don't stop. And soon it was 10 degrees. Now, according to Aesop from 3000 B.C., the ending is simple, as plain as can be. The ant ate and the grasshopper died. But according to little children I met in a kindergarten class, they say they saw a cartoon and things ended differently for the brothers of grass. They say he went knocking on Sister Ant's door. I know, I know, I look like a bum. Please, please give me a crust or a crumb. And she said, you did no work. Sad but true. You did no work, no food for you. But you know what? I'm going to cut you some slack. One time only, and that's a fact. And remember, I did this because I cared. Next time, my brother, be pre Prepared. And even little kids know it's be prepared. Sure. All right. We are out of time. Karima Amin. Yes. People can get more information at karimatells.com. Correct. Thanks so much for being here. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. Thanks for listening.